The following content is explicit. It's Wednesday, October 26, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Yes, this is The Gist, but we are giving it over today to a new show I have been telling you about. Perhaps you might argue prattling on about gifting you. The correct verb is gifting you. Not even mad. We recorded Not Even Mad, as we will, every day, every week without uh, an election. We record on Tuesday nights. We post on Wednesday morning. So I think this will be the only time I give it to you fully in the gist feed. Please do subscribe in its own feed to help me, to help the show, to help civil society. But the recording schedule means that I knew we'd be missing last night's Senate debate. So let me talk about it here before I give you all of Not Even Mad. John Fetterman did in fact have a very bad debate. This is because he had a stroke, and though he was trying as hard as he could, in many ways he showed the effects of that stroke. Hi, good night everybody. I'm running to serve Pennsylvania. He's running to use Pennsylvania. Here's a man that spent more than $20 million of his own money to try to buy that seat. I'm also having... In a close Senate race where there are plenty of questions about the candidate's ability, the performance, in fact, the reality of Fetterman's conditions will be troubling to many voters. Is that unfair? I don't think it is. I think if it's fair for voters to evaluate their potential representatives in ways they've always evaluated them and in ways we've always emphasized, this is how we do it in a democracy. It's fair for them to look at the candidate and be a little bit worried. Maybe you're saying to yourself, no, it's not. He's running against Oz. And how could you vote for Oz or for a MAGA? candidate. We're talking about the mindset of Pennsylvania voters, a state which is, you know, close to 50-50 in all Democrat and Republican questions. It's fair also for voters not to have to take the word of a candidate that he can do it. It might be unfair for an individual running for Senate to have to release detailed medical records. But again, it's a representative democracy. People choose their politicians based on the perception of their representatives' competency and an argument that you're wrong to be concerned by a performance that you saw. It's not a good argument. In fact, in the betting markets, the race went from being a 50-50 toss-up to Oz being a two-to-one favorite. It doesn't mean Oz is going to win. It's just that people who bet their own money, once thought that Oz had about a 30% chance of winning as before Fetterman suffered a stroke. Two days ago, they thought it was 50-50. Today, Oz is trading at 67 cents on the dollar, you know, two out of three chances of winning. The Fetterman campaign is smart. They won't adopt a tone of how dare you engage in ableism. Nothing official from their campaign, I don't expect, will have the word ableism, but it won't matter because the word, the idea of ableism will be used, will be hit upon by surrogates or well-meaning supporters, prominent or not, and the Oz campaign will seize upon that. These people, the Oz campaign will say, they're telling you you're a bad person, Pennsylvania voter, for simply wanting a representative who can do the job. And these people are trying to shame you out of a legitimate concern with a really important choice for you and your family. Early voting has begun in Pennsylvania. The Fetterman campaign now has 12 days to respond, and I'm not sure really clever tweets or controlled interviews with TV journalists are going to do the job. So, as I said, today I am dropping all of Not Even Mad in this feed, 
But I ask you, I beseech you, please subscribe to the show in its own feed. An easy way to do that is to click on the show subscription button in the show notes. These are two different shows, The Gist and Not Even Mad. They have one shared ideal of inquiry and debate, but you'll be helping me. You'll be helping yourself. Again, not to be too grand, you'll be helping all of civic society by subscribing to Not Even Mad in its own feed. It's the only way to not just support the new effort, but to support this effort. If you've ever said, Mike, yeah, the gist, I like it. But you know, I really like getting it for free, putting up with an ad or two. Please, please, last time I'll say it. Now I'm going to give you the show. Please do subscribe to Not Even Mad. Just follow the link in these show notes and enjoy today and from this day forward. Here's Not Even Mad. Hello and welcome to Not Even Mad, a show where we are plainly probing, at times intemperate and manifestly mixing it up, but we're not even mad. Today, as we discuss the label queer, the candidacies of Kari Lake and Herschel Walker, and ask if present-day Republicanism is inextricably racist, we vow to relish the discourse because we are not even mad. Who are we specifically? Jamie Kerchick is a columnist for Tablet Magazine and author of the New York Times bestseller, Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. Jamie, mixing it up, what's your favorite mixture or mix-up? I might have to go with an Arnold Palmer. Which Ooh. is a mixture. A mixture, yes. Right, it wasn't. It's not a failed lemonade. <laughs> and Virginia Heffernan writes features and a monthly column for Wired at the Substack Magic and Loss. Virginia, what's your favorite mixture slash mix-up? I um, just was in Taiwan and someone told me that people mix up Thailand and Taiwan, which I laughed at. You know, how could they do such a provincial thing? And then I said, how do the Thais feel about that? Oops. So (laughs) Thailand and Taiwan is A, my favorite, but B, also my least favorite since I did it myself. Well, I am Mike Pesca, host of The Gist, and that reminds me of, I guess, one of my favorite mix-ups of the Trump administration was when he said Thailand. But Thailand also reminds me of this new biography of Ted Kennedy I'm reading, where the phrase arboreal quads is used, because that man has big, powerful thighs. Wow. Speaking of a man who used his powerful thighs to achieve greatness on the gridiron, which he hopes to translate into the Senate chamber. Here's Georgia Senate candidate Herschel Walker talking about what he won't talk about. That's one of the things I told my camp, my campaign. Guys, y'all can talk about this. Herschel Walker will not do it. There's other things that people haven't talked about. There's more to the camp that people haven't talked about. Some things that the, a young man talked about sexual and physical abuse that money was paid off. And I'm like, guys, let's not talk about that. Uh-huh. Herschel Walker there referencing himself in the third candidate singular. Over in Arizona, the Republican gubernatorial candidate, Kari Lake, has a very different style, all TV news anchor polish, but to similar effect. In each cases, these are MAGA candidates who Trump loved. They defeated more moderate choices or scared away such choices in the primaries. Experts would tell you, ooh, if only there were a moderate, they could win the general. But both of these candidates are strong and very well could win the general. Lake is ever so slightly ahead. Walker and his opponent, Raphael Warnock, will probably have a runoff if neither can top 50%. What I wanted to do was to take the two prominent candidates with maybe the least similar stylistic overlaps and use them to ask, 
Is the Trump or MAGA brand impervious to presentational style, or are they each hitting different pleasure centers of the electorate in the way that in 1979, the number one and two TV programs in America were 60 Minutes and Three's Company? Best examples I could think of. What do you think, Virginia? I mean, aren't we supposed to be on Not Even Mad somewhere between 60 Minutes and Three's Company? That's what, I, that's what I'm aiming for. I mean, I'm not yeah, sure. Mark and Morley Safer. That's what we're going for. <laughs> I, you know, I'm not sure Herschel Walker is hitting pleasure centers, except perhaps because he's a black Republican and white Republicans love black Republicans, no matter how cognitively compromised they are, because they give symbolic absolution. Um, and I don't know where to begin with Kari Lake. I mean, I flat out don't know whether traditional news outlets like The New Yorker, which just did a, a, a big piece on her, are over or underestimating the danger that that Lake represents. But I, I do agree. She's representing nothing but danger. She's ladylike window dressing for QAnon. She's appeared on QAnon shows and the Proud Boys and Grayson Arnold, a known Nazi sympathizer who she's posed for pictures with. You know, she's not like fascism with a human or Botoxed face. She's <laughs> um, she's not tempering with the whim- wingnut ideas of the far right or even making them softer. She's simply espousing them and selling them with finesse. I will also say that I'm not sure she channels Trumpism as much as the sort of conspiracy, QAnon, civil war stuff that is part of colloquial MAGA and was mostly an idiom invented by women white women like Lake herself, or at least they're partisans of it, like Marjorie Taylor Greene um, are are in the Lake mode. So this particular paranoid dialect seems to be, uh, you know, an invention of Lake. It's neo-Trumpism, but it has much more conspiracy and civil war in it. And potentially for that reason, it's more dangerous. I I think there are varieties of Trumpism in the political realm, just as there are varieties in the intellectual realm. Uh, in the in the journalistic realm, you have the kind of Sean Hannity's, right? You have the kind of blundering, uh, perhaps you know, beer hall Donald Trumpism, and then you have, say, the you know Victor Davis Hanson or the fellows at the Claremont Institute, the the the, the uh, Chateaubriand uh, of Trumpism, if you will. And I think we see that in the political realm. You have Curry Lake, who's a veteran television, local news, TV personality who can clearly command a crowd, clearly has stage presence, is well-spoken. Um, what she's saying is absolutely nuts and dangerous. I agree with Virginia. But then you have the Herschel Walker, who can barely form a coherent sentence. What they have in common, all these people, is anti-elitism or, or, or populism, you could say, right? Anti-establishment. That's what I think is ultimately driving people to support them. And they're, they're willing to support it in the form of a kind of a, of a blundering formal f- former football player who doesn't know how many children he has, and they're willing to support it in a, in a polished television presenter. Yeah, and the fact that Trumpism comes in different forms and different flavors is pernicious. It shows that it's a powerful, not just one-trick pony. You know, it's not just the angry white man. It's not just the rent is too damn high candidate. It can show up in all these different ways. So I have a few theories about this. One is that, well, Ruby Kramer, and I think the best, at least national uh, outlet, she was writing for the Washington Post, and the best national outlet profiling Lake, wrote that people have said Kari Lake is Donald Trump in heels, but really she is Donald Trump with media training and polish. I think much more than that, you know who she is. She's 
Ivanka Trump. Yeah. And I would posit that the females within Trump world have to be like this. They're all, I mean, they don't all have to be young and straight haired and uh, blonde haired, but it helps. They're all relatively beautiful. And uh, the South Dakota governor, Christy Nome, Lake and Nome are both widely speculated to be Donald Trump's future running mates. She is of that brand. And so like a lot of, uh, like a lot of expression of gender there's a little more of a box, but man, does Kari Lake inhabit that box. And I'm not sure what Herschel Walker is doing. He seems a little like a one-off. He does have the thing that Donald Trump has, which is, you know, a celebrity that he hopes transcends all others. But I would say, and I think Virginia, you were hinting at this, Kari Lake is just a better candidate. Walker may be doing well or maybe not, you know, he could lose, but Lake seems a lot more insidious. And the last thing I would say, and maybe the through line that unites them both is they're both running against bad opponents. I thought Raphael Warnock was good, but he was lackluster in his debate, which was very important. He needed to take it to Herschel Walker. He did not. I know national pundits will criticize me for saying so. I know Jennifer Rubin wrote a piece that said that Saturday Night Live, Saturday Night Live has better coverage of Herschel Walker than the mainstream media. But I think that, uh, Hobbs, Kitty Hobbs, who's Lake's opponent, is just running away from her in terms of debate. And then Lake made Hobbs's lack of wanting to debate her an issue. Hobbs is so much less polished than Lake, just like Walker is less polished than Warnock. But that is something to consider, that it's not just about the strengths of these MAGA Mm -hmm. candidates and people who worry about Trumpism riding herd over the Republican Party or us all. You got to field really adept opponents. And sometimes the Democrats don't do that. You know, I hope as the show goes on that we try to figure out whether there is actually a Trumpism independent of Donald Trump. So we have to know that these are two candidates, Lake and Walker, who have been endorsed by actual Donald Trump. Right. But they're (laughs) they're running on different platforms. Both of them are pretty I mean, platforms different from Donald Trump's. Both of them are pretty Christian. Uh, I don't really know what Herschel Walker's saying, but Lake seems to be pretty deep in conspiracy, civil war. Uh, Obviously, she has um, that Arizona flavor Republicanism. Maybe Jamie's right. And they're just populists. And we've seen we've seen a um, we've seen a wave of populism that will continue in various forms. And that's what Trumpism is. Um, Or maybe they just are um, what Roger Ailes called the orchestra pit theory of campaigning and media, which is which tenor do you remember? The one who sings the, 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 you know, the song very well or the one who falls into the orchestra pit. I mean, Kari Lake, you know, indicates one of her aides who she says she, uh, you know, hugely admires and tells him to pull out his bottom lip where he has a MAGA tattoo. You know, this stuff is just still weird and it's still outside the norm. And it's still something that uh, that other politicians and, and rivals have have trouble responding to because it's so strange. And I'm not even talking about Herschel Walker. I think that there's a definite Trumpism. Uh, it's it's restrictionist on immigration, obviously. It's protectionist on trade. It is more isolationist on foreign policy. Um, it is for you could say more local control for schools. You know, opposed to certain interests, big tech, the teachers unions, right? These kinds of big institutions. Um, I think there's definitely a coherent ideology of Trumpism, and I frankly think that it's the face of the Republican Party going forward, and it's not going away. 
You said that Lake might be the embodiment of falling into the orchestra pit. Mm. To me, she's not a shock jock. She's smooth jazz. And I think we all know that smooth jazz is a much more insidious and pernicious form (laughs) of music than either of the genres that we've talked about. There is something about the Walker candidacy that really annoys me. And it is embodied in that uh, Jennifer Rubin piece where she wanted to convince you. I mean, the very premise of the piece was just talking about a world I don't recognize. Her premise is that the mainstream media persist in portraying unfit Republican candidates as normal and the midterms as an ordinary clash of policy differences. Thesis, we're not taking it to Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker is getting a pass for all his gaffes and disqualifications. This is totally untrue. But the point is anti-elitism. Anti-elitism relies on someone like Jennifer Rubin, or at least this iteration of Jennifer Rubin, to rail against the media for not taking it to Walker hard Mm. enough when that's all I see the media doing. And in another uh, also pretty irritating salvo from that op-ed, she writes that she talks about what we heard in that clip, that Herschel Walker doesn't present his case well. He's just not really good on a sentence-by-sentence level. But as she says that, she writes, in mainstream publications, you have to leave the newspapers to go to the opinion columns to understand what's going on. The Times' Charles M. Blow, for example, explained that Walker has a base inability to convey his ideas in complete thoughts or sentences. And like a child, when his words fail, he fills in the gaps with energy and emotion, hostility and humor. I think what's going on is that that's not the bias. The bias isn't about uh, an inability to convey ideas or a bias towards even-handedness. They don't want to be accused of racism by mocking the black man for not talking well. So in fact, Jennifer Rubin channels Charles Blow, a black columnist for the New York Times, to do that job. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And it, yeah, the, the proof is that Rubin goes to Blow to make that point. But our own president has trouble given his stutter. You know, Herschel Walker seems to have some cognitive disabilities that are getting in his way. As a former football player, let's let's As a former football player, yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. He might have, he might have he, CTE, that's true. He, he could have he could have an injury or who knows who knows what it is. But then and then also you just mentioned uh Ted Kennedy who was notorious for run-on sentences that didn't track. Um I'm not sure when when we we pick and choose who to say is a, is a, is an orator. Um, and very few people actually in the Senate, uh, you know, can can land a beautiful sentence. Um, and uh, and that's too bad. But, it, it, you know, I, I, th- I think I told I, I told you guys separately that I um, <laughs> I have a soft spot for someone with a redemption story. And I really had hoped that we would hear that from Herschel Walker more right? It's a beautiful story. It was George W. Bush's story that you had walked in darkness and seen a light and you had changed. And I think it's possible. And I think it's possible to model that for, you know, all these sort of wild child figures like Matt Gaetz, um, who, you know, who, who haven't undergone, you know, that kind of self-scrutiny, but he hasn't been able to see it through. And he doesn't actually, to my eyes, look you know, entirely sober and and um, delivered from madness. So um, I just want to I just want to register that disappointment because I like a I like a penitent as a candidate, but he wasn't it. We are going to leave that there, as they say. I think the professionals always say that. We'll be back after a break, and we will be talking about a not entirely unrelated issue: Republicanism and race.
This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're back with Not Even Mad, and here, for a second, is Max Boot. I am so disgusted by what Donald Trump is doing. I mean, you see how in the closing days of the campaign, he is running the most openly racist and xenophobic campaign we have seen in many decades in America. He is vilifying immigrants. He is spreading anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. He is a disgrace to America. And frankly, Republicans, my former party, are no better because they have embraced Donald Trump. There is no difference now between Donald Trump and the Republican Party. So I don't know if you saw this, but Michael Gerson has a has a column in the Washington Post this week about his worst error of moral judgment. And it reminds me a little bit of what happened with Max Boot. Gerson says his error was believing Republicans had goodwill on race. In the old days, he says, when Republicans used to fail to condemn America's history of lynching and over-incarceration and police brutality, he told himself they were just ignorant. They weren't racist. But now he acknowledges that, and this is in his view, white people built a social system to give themselves dominance, systemic racism then exists, and that system has let them steal the wages and wealth of black people. So Max Boot, whom we heard in that clip uh, in 2018, together with um, Stuart Stevens and many other uh, former Republicans and even, even, even existing Republicans, have also discovered root racism in the party. Boot famously wrote that coded racial appeals have always won GOP elections more than, he says, all of the policy proposals crafted by well-intentioned analysts like me. So I'm going to say I find this moving for two reasons. First, in my view, they're right about the GOP. But more importantly, they are right to audit their own ideology. And I hope we'll talk further about this as the show goes on. But they've inspired me to see where I was wrong about liberals. Um, I'll give just one example. I long dismissed the liberal anti-establishment pose as a kind of 
concatenation of harmless lifestyle choices, youthful folly, and online nonsense. But then that pose curdled into anti-vaxxery and ethno-nationalism in the Yoganon crowd, uh, anti-intellectualism and anti-Semitism. So no party has a monopoly on racism. That is what systemic means. And that's why I'm impressed by the willingness of people like Gerson, like Boot, to notice their own blindnesses and work to remediate them. Jamie, what do you think? Are Gerson and company just angling for MSNBC jobs? Or is there something more meaningful going on here? Well, I don't want to question their sincerity. I'm sure they believe what they say. Um, But I don't find it very believable. Uh, are they arguing? Is Michael Gerson arguing that George W. Bush, whom he served for eight years as a chief speechwriter, that George W. Bush was a racist and that he won on racial appeals? How about John McCain, the nominee in 2008 against Barack Obama, who, as we know, explicitly uh, attacked people who were trying to draw him into racist attacks on his opponent, the first black man to be elected president of the United States? Or Mitt Romney? Did Mitt Romney engage in racial appeals? Um, It seems to me that liberals are always going to accuse conservatives and Republicans of racism until they either see the error of their ways, like Mitt Romney, who's now become very anti-Trump, or they're dead in the case of John McCain. Um, I'm willing to grant that Republicans have obviously used racial appeals, Donald Trump being foremost among them. Um, I see Donald Trump as being an exception in the line of presidential candidates, Republican presidential candidates. I think the last Republican presidential nominee, whom you could make a serious argument, made coded racial appeals, was George H.W. Bush with the infamous Willie Horton ad in 1988. But even there, the story of that ad is not as simple as I think a lot of liberals would might make it out to be. I mean, I think one should be able to hold two thoughts in their head at the same time. Uh, one is that, yes, perhaps putting a black criminal's face on national television in the way that that the Bush campaign did was racially inflammatory. At the same time, the program that Governor Dukakis was running, a furlough program where murderers and rapists were allowed to basically leave prison for a weekend, was a crazy program. And it was certainly fair for the Bush campaign to criticize it. Um, so I, I just find this kind of belated, you know, uh, almost kind of religious awakening from some of these never Trumpers. By the way, which I consider myself, I'm 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 a never Trumper. Um, I find I find it a little tiresome at this point. And there's one more point I want to make, which is that the Republican Party is becoming more racially diverse. The Democratic Party is becoming more white. That is the strange, profound. Uh, one of one of the strange effects of the Donald Trump presidency, which many most of us did not foresee when he was running in 2016 on a very racially uh, divisive platform. And so I think to now in 2022, to be coming to this realization that the Republican Party is the party of white supremacy. How is it then that more black people and more non-whites in general, by the way, are voting for this party than they were uh, six years ago? Well, the Democratic Party is becoming more white only as the opposite end of the seesaw that you mentioned with mostly black people aren't moving their allegiances at all, but the Republican Party is getting more of the Latino vote. But I should say the 
whiteness of the Democratic Party, I mean, it, it was majority white and it still is majority right. It's not saying so much in a country that's 60% white and an electorate that's 70% white. So that's just the demographics. If the thesis, so the thesis that I think Gerson is putting forward is, as I said in the top of the show, that the Republican Party is something like inextricably and irredeemably racist. But the problem for me is, and by the way, a, so many of their policies I find are terrible and would be bad for America and um, definitely have racist elements and maybe racist motivations and will have racist effect. But in my lifetime, the charge of racist or racism has become less clarifying rather than more as that word has changed and expanded in definition. But when we Examine, is Gerson saying that the Republican Party is irredeemably racist? He wrote an article before this one last year. He wrote an article. I'm a conservative who believes systemic racism is real. Oh, it seems like he's preaching from the hymnal of Kendi. But if you read that article, he says, I also believe systemic anti-racism is real. And he talks about the Bill of Rights and he talks about the Constitution, which is not necessarily or in fact explicitly not something that most of the uh, people of the Robin D'Angelo sect would cop to. So what I'm saying is beyond the two obvious things of, yeah, there is a lot of policies favored by Republicans that would certainly ha hurt black and brown people beyond that point. And two, Michael Gerson, maybe Max Boots, a little ashamed of the party that they gave most of their life to. And they're both now writing for the Washington Post rather than trying to cash checks from Republican candidates. So there is a little bit of, okay, let's call it self-reflection or let's call it, um, image rehab. Beyond those two obvious points, I don't know what deeper truth he's revealing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't want to do former Republicans work for them. So I'm going to just go with boot on this. Um, in an excerpt from his book, The Corrosion of Conservatism, Boot uh, pointed out that the great conservatives of the 1950s, I think these are the people he admired. I think they're the people you admire too, uh, Jamie. Buckley, Barry Goldwater, Ronald Reagan, and uh, and he says all the rest. So that crowd, they were revolting against, he says, not against liberals, but against the moderate conservatism of Dwight Eisenhower. Um, so they thought he was soft on communists. But to them, Again, this is Max Boot's view. The worst part of Eisenhower as a proto-rhino was that he was a moderate on race, that he had sent troops to Little Rock to enforce desegregation. So I don't think we need to argue about the about the definition of racism. I mean, it, it's meant to encompass a lot of things. But if we take together Gerson's agreement with the diagnosis that there's something systemic about racism, and I think Ibram Kendi also has said there's something systemic or at least pervasive about anti-racist action and anti-racist racist legislation in America, I think it'd be hard to deny that. But even if, as Gerson signs on with that, Boot has, you know, says this thing that elections are won with racist dog whistles or race baiting, and uh, that you can see that in the New York Times this week. There's an incredible article about various races in Wisconsin and New Mexico that are using... Um, racist, use, using explicitly racist uh, propaganda and symbol, symbolism to um, stir up votes for Republican candidates. So in one case, in order to generate fear about Black people, some hands 
of a barber have been darkened to look black on the head of a little boy um, to look as though he and then to imply that this is some kind of pedophile, some kind of child molester who might get his hands on your kid um, and to make him look especially evil. One presumes he's his his hands have been darkened to look like they're black. That's just one of these one of these egregious examples of racist advertising that exactly the kind that Boot points out. I mean, this happens in American politics, and it's disgusting. And Jesse Helms had a famous ad, uh, the hands ad, right, where it, it was uh, mm-hmm. black hands taking a job from a white person or taking a welfare check, something like that. This happens. But I think liberals, they, uh, you're, you're not doing yourself a service. Democrats are not doing themselves a service electorally by convincing themselves or telling themselves that the only reason they're losing elections is because of the racism of the other side. Uh, Ronald Reagan did not win a massive landslide in 1980 because of race. Richard Nixon did not win a massive landslide in 1972 solely because of race. Uh, George W. Bush did not win because of race. And I would even go so far now as to say, while at the time I thought Donald Trump in 2016 won primarily because of race, I don't even think that's true. Uh, And I think that the more, and I think this is, we're we're hearing this now in the weeks leading up to this election, where I think the Democrats are going to get routed they're going to get destroyed. And I think it's very comforting, but not politically useful to tell yourselves that, you know what, the people who vote against us are irredeemable racists, because then what are you going to do? Um, when, when, whenever someone mentions the word crime or the issue of crime, that is now condemned as a racial appeal. Keep on doing that, Democrats. It's there's not going to no help. You're, you're just going to lose elections. There's absolutely no comfort in thinking that there's a racist strain in American politics, and in particularly in, in particular in GOP politics. I mean, the fact that that would give anyone comfort is baffling. But there are certain causes, right? And I think usually, often Republicans and Trumpites say that the cause is pain at the pump, or the cause is a legitimate fear of immigrants because of uh, of jobs. Um, or, you know, there, we can push back the cause, right? We can imagine that the people who said that they favored the mass deportations of Mexicans and Muslims were not racist, but actually had some idea that their jobs were compromised or that crime might be brought in because they had some wholesome and actually well-informed fear about terrorism, say. Um, you know, it seems like full stop. You favor the mass deportation of Mexicans and Muslims, which was the number one policy concern that uh, Trump voters had in 2016. It, you know, I, I think in using he the word racist... Even, he, never, he never even made a realistic move in that direction. There was never a serious prospect You think of he deport, wanted to fail in the courts? Deportation well, the, I'm of Muslims... I'm talking about the Muslim ban. There was, a, there was a ban on seven countries. Yes. Okay, that, that, is, that is much different than deporting massive amounts of Muslims Look, from this the country. Fact that so Trump accurately... let his voters down on the things they voted him in for, the wall and uh, and the Muslim ban and a and a ban and a deportation movement. Do you think a wall is racist? Inherently I think if you racist? favor the mass deportation of Mexicans and Muslims, I don't see any gain. I think it it's extremely useful and has explanatory power to say that you're casting a racist vote. If well, you want to well, say Barack more than Obama that Obama deported probably as many, if not more illegal immigrants back to Central and Latin America than Donald Trump well, ever did. Where, I mean, Jamie, you can't switch us from talking about campaign promises, campaigning, vamping, which Max Boot was talking about, to now saying who did what. I'm talking about, I'm starting with Max Boot's idea 
borne out in the New York Times that Republicans win on racist signaling. And I think that was true in 2016. I think that was true in 2020 when Trump didn't win, partly because he called to the Proud Boys a racist group, because he gave encouragement to groups like QAnon who uh, get deeper and deeper into anti-Semitic madness every day. Um, And those are, I think, the things that caused him to lose and caused him to get in that case, but caused him to get the support that he did get. The problem, the complication is that you have Donald Trump, who is, of course, racist and espouse racist policies, whether or not they were implemented and whether or not he meant to implement them. I'm not talking mostly about the mass deportation, which could never happen, but I'm talking about really trying to get a Muslim ban that he was too incompetent to actually pass. But there are, this is the complication. What's our policy? What should our policy be on crime, which is rising? There is a strain of thinking. Well, I I think we should eliminate cash bail. Might go one policy proposal. That's not one that I agree with. Or I think we actually should fund the police more. That is one I agree with. That's going to get called racist. So there are certain policy proposals that Republicans favor because they smartly think this is where the electorate is. And many Democrats do. And many Democrats do. Eric Adams won on such an issue. Another thing, another thing like that is what are we going to do about immigration? If you have a mindset of to actually forcibly endorse and follow through with following our immigration laws, you're going to get called racist by a whole lot of activists who are mostly aligned with Democrats, although probably uh, criticize the Democratic leadership. That doesn't mean it is racist. So the complication is, so therefore you could say, I'd make a pretty good uh, right-wing talk show host if I said something like, it's not racist, they just always call it racist. But then there's the things that are racist. Mm -hmm. All the talk about voter IDs, all the talk about stealing elections, that is motivated by the self-interest of suppressing the black vote. That's how, that's what the game is. There might be some legitimacy in terms of asking for an ID. And I know a lot of European countries ask for an ID, but the reason it's done, the game there is to gain an electoral advantage by suppressing the black vote. And so that is racist. And that is a very strong plank of the Republican Party electoral strategy. Yeah, I mean, it's discriminatory and it's against the Voting Rights Act. Like you don't need to. We're not talking about like seminar discussions of what small gestures count as microaggressions when we're talking about suppressing the black vote. Well, that settles the not at all nettlesome question of race onto another, ah, some would say thorny issue, gay, queer, the actual word, what to use Up for discussion, up next. Well, now that we've handled the easy to define question of what is racism, (laughs) let's go to what is gay or who is gay or who is queer. Jamie, you're one of those things, but not both. Am I right? (laughs) We're here. We're queer. I'm not used to it. Here is a clip from a 1968 debate between Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley Jr. It's in the middle of the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. I know you don't as care. As far as I'm concerned, the only sort of pro-crypto-Nazi yeah. I can think of is yourself. Failing that, 
Let's, I would let's, only let's say that we names. can't have now listen, you the right of assembly. Stop calling here. me a crypto-Nazi. Let's, let's stop calling I'll names. I'll you in your goddamn face, and let's, you'll stay plastered. Gentlemen, Last Sunday, New York Times columnist Pamela Paul published a provocative piece entitled Let's Say Gay, exploring how the word queer is replacing gay as a descriptor for the LGBTQIA plus community. That acronym keeps on growing. Uh, Ten years ago, Paul writes, queer appeared just 85 times in the Times, whereas in this year alone, it appeared 632 times. In that same period, the use of gay declined from 2,228 to 1,531, and the umbrella term LGBTQ increased from a mere two mentions to 714. Queer used to be a slur for gay people, but beginning in the early 1990s with the rise of the direct action protest group Queer Nation, it's become increasingly popular among those who identify as anything but straight, but also even among some straight people as well. Queer, they say, serves a practical function synonymous with the unwieldy acronym LGBTQIA+. Other gays still bristle at the word's derogatory sting and object to its connotation of political and lifestyle radicalism. Full disclosure, Paul interviewed me for the piece, which is just one of many reasons why you should read it. (laughs) Uh, One of the problems with queer, I told her, is that whereas homosexuality is a sexual orientation one cannot choose, queerness is a vague state of being that anyone can freely adopt or discard. If sexual orientation is a morally neutral trait, like having red hair or being left-handed, queerness is invested with many meanings and it has become a fashion and a political statement to which not all gay people subscribe. So Virginia, am I queer for not wanting to be referred to as a queer? Absolutely not. I mean, choose your, you know, go out on your own branch, choose your name. Isn't that what we were supposed to learn from uh, from the rainbow and from ACT UP? You know, when I was reading this and talking to you about it, I realized I did not know the derivations of any of these words. And, you know, all of them have history and and over overtones. I saw that Pamela Paul rejects the word homosexual out of hand as, quote, dour and faintly judgmental. Um, and, uh, you know, I like the word gay also, it comes from cheery, right? And it was briefly used. I, I looked this up to describe straight people who were pleasure seeking people I might call partiers and sometimes sex workers. And then it landed on men who seek carnal pleasure in the company of other men. Um, then of course there's, there's the F word. I don't know if I can say it here, but I'm going to refer to it in the context of a bundle of sticks. So faggot, Mm. this word for a bundle of sticks, any idea how that came to refer to gay people, gay men? It's a word associated with hearths and women's work carrying light little bundles of kindling. Hmm. Well, a man who carried these sticks, according to at least one account of this, was seen as feminized or domesticated. Ah. So you have a version of, so with gay, with the F word, you have an idea that a, that a gay man, or let's say a homosexual man, a man who sleeps with men, is, uh, is cheery, is maybe licentious. Um, and with the other one, he's the opposite. He's like, t- you know, domesticated and, uh, and just does a lot of housework. Um, so, you 
you know, yeah, one of them is homebound. The other one's a good time Charlie, who's like a rake and outlaw, whatever. So, and I've also heard Southerners, you've probably heard this, call gay men musical. Um, I love, as far as queer goes, I love the British saying, there is nought as queer as folk. Did you know that one? <laughs> there is not nothing as strange no. as people, which gave rise to queer as folk. Anyway, Mike, yeah. you're a straight white cis male, so you should have a firm say here. So that's why I am not the one to make this observation. But if gay people are musical or bisexual people sung through musicals, how would that work exactly? Um, yes, if the if the whole disclaimer of, of as a, a straight cis man never existed before, I would certainly invoke it now. But the reason is not just out of self-defense. The theory behind that, the principle is that course want to call people what they want to be called and the most accurate neutral term and so if someone tells me queer is the term i will i can't shut the part of my brain down where i don't say why why is that i get a good answer okay i question it i'll certainly call some people queer however now jamie's raising the point you know no one asked me no one asked us yeah if my principle is i want to call people what they want to be called oh now maybe we're hearing from people who don't want to be called that. And maybe those voices weren't being solicited in the first place. I do think that it's, but you tell me, Jamie, I do think it's generational. The mm. complicating thing being you're not of the generation that mostly yes. objects to queer. Is that right? Well, uh, yeah, I'm an older, elder millennial. And it does seem that uh, the G generation Z, I believe, is the generation below us. They seem to have freely embraced this. Among millennials, it's increasingly popular. And among people older than me is where I find the most resistance because particularly among people my age and older, queer was a really uh, traumatic word. It was the taunt you heard on the playground. It was often the last word that a gay man would hear before getting his head bashed in. So then let me ask, mm. as, the na as words naturally evolve, won't it be the case that in 20 years as the Gen Zs and whatever come after Zs uh, become the dominant or just the only living people and it no longer has that association, this will stop being an objection. It might, but I suspect it might not because what does queer mean? It means uh, weird, strange, out there, uh, and also its origins. You know, Queer Nation was a radical left-wing protest organization. So I don't, it might be difficult for it, for the word to escape from its political connotations. And so I think you're always going to have a, a subset or maybe even a majority of gay people, conservative gay people, but even moderate, maybe liberal ones who just don't like this word because they don't think of themselves primarily as being, uh, or say their sexual orientation isn't the main trait that defines them, right? And so being a member of a minority sexual orientation is not what 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 defines them in, in their existence, and so they don't want to they don't want to be labeled with a word that means or that connotes uh, marginalism. But didn't you just write a book a book about the history of gay Washington? Yes, and perhaps this is this might be some of the reason why I'm so resistant to this word mm. because I spent years in archives and reading newspaper articles and talking to people about gay life in our na in our nation's political scene from FDR to the Clinton administration, and the only time in which the word queer came up 
was as a slur, was in a derogatory fashion. So it's it's difficult for me to wrap my head around this and to accept it. But I just could be a you know a young fogey. And I and I in fact read from page two footnote queer, mm. which most gay and straight people consider pejorative during the period covered by this book, will appear in these pages only as such. Don't you like being quoted to yourself? Yeah. <laughs> but do you think that gay has a negative connotation to anyone? It does seem like gay is the generational catch-all term that even if some people more prefer queer or more prefer LGBTQ, the G is gay and not too many people, gay pride, gay pride month, um, not too many people seem to object to gay as they do as what I'm hearing from you, queer and from some people homosexual because that does seem clinical. Well, a large reason why queer has been adopted is because it includes the T. It includes transgender, which is sort of the elephant in the room of this discussion, because a lot of trans people are not gay, right? They are opposite sex attracted. So the word gay or lesbian does not encompass them. Uh, I thought LGBT was an okay umbrella term, but apparently that's not good enough anymore. And so queer, part of the reason why queer has been adopted is because it encompasses those of different gender identities, uh, in addition to people who have same-sex attraction. Uh, and can I add one thing? Mm. The A, the A in the acronym is for asexuals. Right. This I find preposterous, okay? Because the entire reason why there was a gay movement is because this country used to discriminate against people because of their same-sex attraction. It was illegal to be uh, to have sexual relationships with people of the same sex in this country for hundreds of years. You could lose your job. You were denounced by your clergy. You could be institutionalized. You couldn't work for the federal government or serve in the military. So that is a protected class. What do asexuals have to do with this? I mean, I find that just insulting, frankly, that this is, I mean, asexuals have never been discriminated against in this country. They've never been discriminated against by their, by their government. They've never been fired from a job because they're asexual. This is making a mockery. It's really making a mockery of, of the movement. And I think it's frankly why we often laugh now when we see these, you know, ridiculous versions of the rainbow flag that looks like a, a messed up test of the emergency broadcast system, right? Or the, uh, the acronym just, ex you know, is starting to encompass the entire alphabet. It seems most people are just sort of groaning or rolling their eyes when this topic comes up now. And I find that to be... A sad. I find that to be a shame that our community, even in liberal spaces now, is often um, a punchline. I mean, you look at Dave Chappelle, and he has whole routines based on the alphabet people, right? He talks about the alphabet people. Yeah, um, the, 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 I mean, the right has loved to make fun of the number of letters in LGBTQ. In fact, um, when right after Trump's victory... It's not just the right, Virginia. It's not just the right. It's a lot of liberals, too. Okay. Everyone likes to. I do know that <laughs> one on the right, someone on the right said, better nuclear winter under Trump than more letters in LGBTQ. LGBTQ <laughs> is obviously supposed to square a circle that we're all bringing up here, which is difficult, that it, maybe these groups should be bonded together. Maybe they shouldn't. At the reason I spent some time on the difference between gay and queer and the F word in their origins is that these words are mostly given by non-gay people, by the straight world um, to this population, to describe a population that it can't quite interpret. So, but um, there is something, to, it's to describe people whose gender and sexual identity is confusing to straight people. Something's a little something's different about it than being straight. And 
that word queer is meant to convey it's a difference that we can't quite pinpoint. And I totally get it. If, you know, if it's more interesting to be, you're, if you put your sexuality in the spot of your cheerfulness, your gayness, as opposed to, mm. you know, your eccentricity, um, your, your queerness. But, um, you know, let's like ha- spare a moment for the style book writers. It is really hard to do this. <laughs> you know, they had to switch to uh, capital black, then lowercase black, then African-American, then people of color and back to capital black. And, you know, we writers who just struggle to keep up with it. Um, and no one's ever happy with all of it. Yeah, well, you know, you mentioned the style book writers, even the National Lesbian Gay Journalists Association doesn't fully embrace queer. They say originally a pejorative term for gay, now reclaimed by some LGBTQ people. Use with caution, still extremely offensive Uh when used as an epithet and still offensive to many LGBTQ people, regardless of intent. So I do, and you're concerned, Jamie, about, you know, who voted on this and how was this thrust upon us and all of us? And the answer answer is, you know, academia and uh, activists. That That is the answer. And I get your concern. Yeah. Well, this has been a very queer conversation. Thank you all <laughs> for joining me. And Mike, I believe you're going to introduce a, a recurring feature in our podcast. This is the section of the show, because many shows talk about something that flits across the consciousness of the hosts, and they wish to celebrate it, and they wish to clink glasses over it. Not us. We like to grouse. These are things that get our goats. These are things that grind our gears. These are our goat grinders. Virginia, would you like to start us off with your goat grinder? Whoa. Oh, my God. (laughs) That is exactly the right entry into forced nostalgia via iPhone photo reels. You know, the old ones that suddenly come up and show you uh, what you were doing or the photos around you four or five, ten years ago. I am not always in the mood for the complete wallop of nostalgia that these deliver. And I also don't like that they bring a little pop song with them. Usually I don't recognize the song that they're set to, but recently Landslide by Stevie Nicks came up with um, the really trenchant observation that even children get older. Even children children get older too. Even children, and I'm getting older too. (laughs) Two things I did not want to be reminded of when I saw a lovely picture of myself as a young mother um, Mm -hmm. in a way that I don't look anymore. And my children, my sunrise sunset you know was hit too hard i just want to have a choice about when nostalgia hits so that's my goat grinder jamie my goat grinder was a column in newsweek and subsequent twitter meltdown by the venture capitalist david Sachs. his column was entitled neocons and the woke left are joining hands and leading us to woke war three now Sachs is in a kind of an emerging figure in the in the new right And this is just an example of a trend that I see on the internet where, you know what, not everything is about your thing. Um, The war in Ukraine has nothing to do with wokeness in the United States. Uh, The fact that there might be some woke people in the United States who support the Ukrainians in their fight against Russia does not make the Ukrainians, therefore, the bad guys. Um, stop letting your adversaries or your enemies do your thinking for you. So that's my goat. Yeah. Good goat. 
Not all in with David Sachs. My goat grinder concerns the tenure of Liz Trust. <laughs> Do you know that she served for a very short period of time? What? Counted in, yes, <laughs> counted in weeks. Now, I could get my head around that concept. She started on September 6th. She left on October 25th. That is a short period of time. There are even, it turns out, heads of lettuce that didn't serve as long as that head of state. But apparently, many in the news media have found a different way to express this oh so cleverly. They emphasize the point that Liz trust was not just with us for a few weeks, but... The UK tomorrow will install its third prime minister in seven weeks. The third in two months. For the third time in less than two months. In less than three months. His party's third leader this year. Changing prime ministers at a pace never seen. (laughs) Yeah, that pace being, I'm going to say, within three months. This is how anyone with a short tenure... That's how it works. The person with the short little tenure in the middle is preceded by someone and succeeded by someone. And if you count all three people, it will be a short amount of time. So thank you, everyone in the news media, for clarifying just how short Liz Truss's term was. Next, please do the bass player for Jane's Addiction. I don't, I can't get my head around it. Anthony Scaramucci. (laughs) Yeah, Scaramucci's. But, and I especially love that real. I want to talk more like those people. Third prime minister in four months. (laughs) This was the eighth reference to that in six newscasts. (laughs) Well, that's it for today. This inaugural show, Not Even Mad, is a peach fish project. Want to drop us a line? The email address is notevenmad at peachfishprojects.com. We do ask you, beseech you really, to subscribe to Not Even Mad in all your podcast players and tell your friends to subscribe and require your relatives to subscribe. And look for the hashtag notevenmad on Twitter. That's where Jamie, Virginia, and I will be discussing some of the topics on this week's show and next week's. Theme song is by Max Kerman. Content designed by Big Yellow Taxi. For all your graphic needs, providing your aesthetic runs towards good-looking graphics. Advertising is by Lipson's Advertise Cast. If you want to see what we look like when we're just naturally joshing around in retouched photos, go to mikepesca.com slash notevenmad. Virginia Heffernan's column this month in Wired is about Elon Musk, J.D. Vance, and the right-wing panic about underpopulation. Jamie Kerchick had a piece in Colette about confronting Alice Walker's anti-Semitism at a book festival. Until next time, we are not saying we're right. We're definitely not saying you're right. We are saying we're not even mad. Not even mad.